The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Pastor Aaron will be preaching from Psalm 127. Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Good morning. Pray with me as we ask the Lord's help. Father, unless you build the house, we labor in vain. Unless you preach this sermon, I preach in vain. Father, I pray that you would speak through me as your instrument today. Because we need your word. Your word, your word is the words of life. And where can we go but to sit under your word? And so, Father, we ask that you would speak to us this morning. We're listening. Amen. Psalm 127 is a text that I ran across or I discovered, or I should say it found me, a little over a decade ago. And it's been, I've been wrestling with it ever since. It challenges my sense of self-sufficiency or my aim for self-sufficiency and calls me to dependence. Now, some of you know Diodne. How many of you know Diodne? Um, he was my TA when I was in seminary, not here, uh, in the Twin Cities, but in Louisville. And I wrote a paper on this psalm when I was in seminary, and he graded that paper. And he is a good grader. I won't tell you my grade, but I will tell you this. He challenged me to do a better, make a better argument for why this psalm is one psalm and not two. And I have been wrestling with that question ever since. So that was a long time ago many years ago, and I still have been mulling that question over. And today I would say this, at the heart of this psalm is a cry for us to experience the gift of our dependence, to see that dependence is a gift. A life lived conscious of our dependence on God is a life lived in view of God's grace. A life lived in view of God's grace is a life that can experience the truest flourishing. The life that God intends for us. The life we were made for. In our culture, we have a tendency to think that independence is the answer. The truly flourishing life is one of freedom and autonomy. And we're susceptible to this as well. But I submit to you that we see here in this text that the best life is one lived with reality in view. 
And your reality and my reality is one of utter dependence on God. Let's read the first stanza once more. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Life lived independent from God is a fiction. The word vain is repeated three times in this section. It has the meaning of meaninglessness, and it also carries connotations of falseness or deception. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor for a mirage. They labor for a pipe dream, a fiction. Life lived independent from God is false. It's vain. Whether this is applied to building a house, guarding a city, or burning the candle at both ends, the argument Solomon is making in this text is that independence from God leads to anxiety and meaningless toil that is ultimately unsatisfying and worthless. And Solomon should know this. As the author of Ecclesiastes a reoccurring refrain that describes for us all different kinds of things that he put his hand to, from work to building gardens and wisdom and seeking pleasure of all kinds. And he would say, I found each of them worthless and unsatisfying apart from God. Ecclesiastes 1.14, I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Life lived in independence independence from God promises freedom and control, but it only delivers anxiety, insecurity, and futility. Social media is an example I want us to take a look at this morning. So social media has promised us a better life. It's supposed to make the world a better place. If you type into Google, Zuckerberg, Facebook, Save the World, there's actually a whole lot of articles you'll find from 2017 when Mark Zuckerberg wrote a 6,000-word manifesto promising to pivot the practices of Facebook to save the world, to make the world a better place, to, to reform their practices and, and have a better outcome for the world. That was 2017. We all know how that turned out. Most of us aren't in this room looking at Facebook to save our world. But we might be susceptible to more subtle promises of social media, promises of independence, connection, and a better life. Let me take a run at describing three other significant social media platforms that I have some familiarity with. Twitter. Join me and you will have impact and significance. Join the conversation is their slogan. On Twitter, you are, you are where the conversation is happening. Whatever conversation that is that you want to be a part of, but it's where it's happening. And if you do Twitter right, you will build a platform so your voice will be heard by thousands and maybe millions. Instagram. Join me and be seen. Join me and you will be seen and admired. Or if you prefer, you can see and admire those who are truly worthy 
to be admired. You can be an influencer or follow influencers. Instagram tells us what is beautiful and shows us the good life, the places we can travel and the food that looks too good to eat. Their slogan, capture and share the world's best moments. Instagram is an attempt to capture a life that is fleeting and preserving it for others to see and admire. And Facebook, which most of us are probably familiar with, promises connection with all the friends you've ever had, providing you with security of knowing you are not forgotten. In practice, however, Twitter is about the fight. It's about the glory of verbal victory, and we use our platform to send mobs of mocking and angry people to pillory those we deem deserving. As the meme goes, each day Twitter has a main character, and the goal is to never be it. In practice, Instagram, more often than not, leads to envy, dissatisfaction with our own filterless lives, and studies have demonstrated significant depression, especially in young women. And finally, in practice, we know that Facebook doesn't deliver on real connection. Nothing can replace true face-to-face conversation with a friend who knows you. How many of you times have you gone to Facebook in a time of boredom, and you've left 30 minutes later feeling more lonely? Social media began with an idea, a desire to connect college guys with cute girls, And as it has grown, it has gotten better at tapping into each of our personalized needs. And yet it fails. It fails to deliver what it promises. Social media is based in one of the most powerful parts of the world, Silicon Valley. And yet with all its intelligence, wealth, and vast global resources, it cannot deliver on its promise for better and more fulfilling lives. The social media project is ultimately in vain. But social media has tapped into something we were made for. We were made for significance. We were made to be seen. And we were made to know the security of being known and loved in deeply connected community. And this is what Psalm 127 is all about. Psalm 127 is about embracing the reality that God made us for a life lived in dependence as his beloved. Let's take a look at verse 2. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. This is the heart of the psalm right here. It's the hinge that the psalm turns on. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. This is where we see the the shift of vain, vain, vain to sleep. Vain labor, sleep. Why is it in vain? Because a life of anxious toil is not what we were made for. We were made to know what it means to be God's beloved. Derek Thompson wrote a series of articles in The Atlantic a few years ago where he observed what he called workism, which he described as a trend he saw in young professionals to put religious significance into their work. The title of his first piece says it all. Workism is making Americans miserable. Subtitle, for the college-educated elite, work has morphed into a religious identity 
promising transcendence and community, but failing to deliver. Work, he observes, was not meant to hold the weight of religion. Work cannot give us the ultimate sense of meaning that we crave. Now, Thompson is not a believer. He doesn't have the answer, but he rightly recognizes there's a problem. Anxious toil is not what we were made for. We were made for something more. And Psalm 127 tells us we were made to know the love of God as his beloved. And what does the psalmist use to epitomize the gift of God to his beloved? Sleep. This is really significant because sleep is not about productivity. It's about presence. Sleep reminds us of our dependence on God. When we sleep, we give up control. We express our dependence. We fall into slumber because it feels like we're falling into something. We speak of falling in love because it's something that happens to us. We fall asleep because it's something that happens to us. We often speak of sleep coming to us because sleep really is a gift. It's God's gift. And in order to receive sleep, we have to do that. We have to receive it as a gift with open hands. I have three little girls, and sometimes my girls struggle to fall asleep. And this psalm has helped me as I've given them counsel in those times. I've said to them, sweetheart, sleep is a gift. We can't work towards it. We have to receive it. And we know this. Picture for a moment holding a sleeping baby. That baby is the picture of dependence. And I can remember holding my girls and the breathing and the smell of a newborn and the warmth and the bewilderment as a new dad, depending on which one it was. But just knowing, like, this is a baby that I love in my arms. I'm not thinking in that moment, what is she going to do for me? I'm thinking, I love her. Or there's times when I'm awakened in the night and my wife, Liz, is still asleep and my mind drifts to reflecting on my love for her. She's my beloved. How distorted would be my thinking in that moment if I were thinking about the amount of work she'll be able to do the next day because of optimal sleep patterns? That would be a distortion of love, wouldn't it? Love isn't primarily about productivity. It's focused on presence and refreshment. God's gift of sleep should remind us of his presence. And his presence recalls for us our dependence. And life lived in dependence is refreshing. Anxious toil was introduced into our world when Adam grasped that that which was not his to take. When Adam sought his independence, he introduced a toil that was divorced from a work of love, but instead of grasping after that which is vain, empty, and meaningless. And Adam's striving brought on the curse that each of us experience. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow. 
God's gift of sleep reminds us of the grace that was there before the fall. When God gave the first woman to the first man. The grace that was there when God created the world with first evening and then morning. Beginning each day with the gift of sleep. C.S. Lewis has a poem about the sleep of Adam before the fall. One I recommend to you. I'm going to read the first two stanzas. Except at the making of Eve, Adam slept. Not at all as men now sleep before the fall. Sin yet unborn, he was free from that dominion of the blind brother of death who occults the mind. Instead, when stars and twilight had him to bed and the dutiful owl whirring over Eden had hooted, a warning to the other beasts to be hushed till morning and curbed to their plays that the man should be undisturbed. I just want you to feel the regality and stateliness of Adam's sleep that Lewis captures in those eight lines. Sleep as an expression of dependence is a truly kingly act. Like Jesus asleep in a boat on the raging sea of Galilee. But Solomon doesn't end the psalm here. He doesn't end the psalm with undisturbed slumber. He leads us from the sleep of the beloved to another gift, the gift of children. Let's read the second stanza, verses 3 through 5. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Children are presented as an important example of God's provincial provision for our flourishing. Provision by the means of our dependence on others in deeply rooted community. And I want to point this out because not all of us have children. Some of you are five, and some of you um, for other reasons. So whether it's stage of life, singleness, or the sorrow of infertility or miscarriage, whatever your circumstance, I want to just say right here, this psalm is still for you. Say with me as we unpack how children provide an example of God's provincial provision for our flourishing for each of us. Now we see in verse 3 that life lived in dependence is grounded in both blessing and responsibility. Children are a gift because we cannot manufacture children. They're outside of our control. We can't go on Amazon and have a child delivered in two days via Amazon Prime. Often the adoption process is long, expensive, and difficult. Many of our dear friends who have adopted children have stories of the journey it took to adopt, and there's others we know who are still waiting. Even those of us who have children often have stories of heartache from miscarriage and seasons of uncertainty where it was wondered if children ever would come. And for those of us who have no difficulty having children, frequently find that the term birth control is an oxymoron. Children are outside of our control. Children are another sign for us of our dependence on God's provision. Children are a heritage from the Lord, and another word for heritage is inheritance. An inheritance is not something for us to spend willy-nilly on our desires. It's something for us to steward. Children are a gift for us to enjoy and bear responsibility for because children are dependent on us. And as such, we're reminded again of our dependence on God. 
And it's good and right for children to be dependent on their parents. Children show us the ultimate sense of dependency. So much so that Jesus in Matthew 18 makes this point when he says, I tell you the truth, unless you become like a little child, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is not talking about immaturity. He's talking about dependence. We can only enter the kingdom of God by grace, and we can only live in the kingdom of God by grace. In the Lord's Prayer, we're told to pray, give us today our daily bread. Presumably, that's every day. We're called to pray that God would give us our daily bread as a daily reminder of our daily dependence on a loving Heavenly Father. But life lived in dependence is not just blessing and responsibility. It also means security and generational impact. Life lived in dependence is one of security and significance. Verse 4, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Now, most of us don't use arrows, and we're not often thinking about our physical safety, but that's largely because we have a police force and a system of laws and government that, for the most part, keeps us safe. But arrows in the hand of a warrior provide protection and deterrence, and arrows extend the reach. They fly far and true. Now, notice that this, these are the children of one's youth. These are children who've been raised in the heart of the home, not as an afterthought, but whose sense of identity is grounded in the family. The children of one's youth are like arrows in the hands of a warrior. I mean, they provide security and they extend the reach. Generational significance challenges our preoccupation with the immediate. So we have a tendency to think about our life's impact in terms of this week's productivity and two to three year work goals. If we're honest, we have a tendency to judge our own value by how we did that day. There's an interview with David Letterman who says that every day he experiences life based on how he did the night before. David Letterman um, used to, I think, ha- have a, a show on TV at night. Uh, here's what David Letterman says. Every night, uh, you're trying to prove your self-worth. It's like meeting your girlfriend's family for the first time. You want to be the absolute best, wittiest, smartest, most charming, best-smelling version of yourself. If I can make people enjoy the experience and have higher regard for me when I'm finished, it makes me feel like an entire person. If I've come short of that, I'm not happy. How things go for me every night is how I feel about myself for the next 24 hours. Does that sound familiar? You're probably not doing a TV show. But how often do we ground our sense of identity? He says, when I've finished, if I, do, if I do well, it makes me feel like an entire person. If I come short of that, I'm not happy. How things go for me every night is how I feel about myself for the next 24 hours. David Letterman is not alone, is he? But... When we live lives in dependence on God, we can shift our gaze from our to-doist apps, our Trello charts, and our Asana teams to the Almighty God who brought about His plan for salvation. His plan for salvation. 
Not in a 6,000-word manifesto, but over 6,000 years. We need to think less in gigabytes per second and more in terms of generations. Spurgeon, in one of his sermons on this psalm, points out that Genesis 11 begins with the building of the Tower of Babel and ends with the birth of Abraham. It begins with toil and striving after the vain hope of greatness and ends with the child of promise. The conception and birth of Abraham took place like every other child throughout history as a gift from God. When we live lives of dependence, we can receive all that we have as a gift. And that changes everything. We see in verse 5 that having many children is a blessing, and we're told why. Because he shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. What the psalmist is saying here is this. The children of our youth, those who depend on us when, we, when they were young, when they are grown, are those we can depend on. This portrays for us the reality that we were made for dependence on God and in a lesser but very real way, dependence on one another. In the context, this psalm was written in the city gate was the place where everything happened. They didn't have Twitter. You didn't join the conversation by hopping on an app. You went to the city gate. That's where the politics happened. The city gossip, the lawsuits, and other business of the city. We see this cultural reality referenced in Proverbs 31, 23. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders in land. This is also where your enemies would come with accusations or other attempts to discredit you. Here Solomon reminds us that the children, which are gifts from God, grant the beloved honor and protection that is secure. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. We don't have a literal city gate anymore that matters that much to us, but we do understand the significance of the honor that children bring us in our old age, whether those are our biological children or spiritual children. We have a saying that reflects this. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. That's often true. And a tree that has many good apples speaks well of the tree. There's a security and protection from dishonor that comes through a life lived in faithful dependence. Not all of us will have children. God calls each of us to different life circumstances. But this text serves us as a reminder. A reminder that God cares about the things that we care about. He offers us the answer to all we truly need. And all he asks of us is that we live lives of dependence and receive from him all that we need. We were made for significance. We were made to be seen. And we were made to know the security of being known and loved in deeply connected community. God offers us the true solution to our anxiety. He offers to us rest in exchange for anxious toil. In Christ, he calls us beloved and gives to us sleep. As Christ says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. God offers us the true solution for our quest for significance and meaning. When we realize we are Christ's, our search for significance ends. How much more significance can we gain than experiencing the gaze of Christ? Who can look upon the face of Christ and not be transformed. 
As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. God offers us true security, the only kind of security that cannot be taken away. Psalm 16.8, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. God offers us true significance that results in true impact, impact through dependence. Unless the Lord builds, unless the Lord watches over, it's all in vain. It's a fiction. God offers us the kind of impact that will likely not go viral on social media. And it won't build you a platform to sell your own book, but the only kind that truly matters. The kind of impact that we cannot boast in. For by grace we have been saved through faith. It is not our own doing, but the grace of God, the gift of God, so that no one can boast. What use is boasting if we're boasting in vanity? If we are boasting in the ephemeral, the boasting in our own tower of Babel, God gives his blessing through means as humble as sleep and children. He works out his purposes in his timing and not ours. We can sleep at night because we know that he holds the world together. As we close, I want to leave us with some questions to chew on. If the heart of this psalm is the Lord's call for us to experience the gift of our dependence, how does that change how we live every day? First, the psalm challenges our culture's view of children. Solomon uses children as an argument for God's God's provision for us and our ultimate dependence. Children are not the natural place that most of us would go to make that argument. Picture an argument for God's fatherly provision for us that went like this. Proposition. God cares for us as a loving Heavenly Father. Argument number one, He gives to us sleep. Argument number two, He gives us kids. We laugh because we know it sounds strange, but that's what God's saying here in this text. And so that ought to make us to stop and think, whoa, this is a different world. What kind of priorities are being reflected by God's word that is different than the world we live in? And here's one implication of that reflection. Invest in the upcoming generation. God's not going to give all of us children in our home but he has given us all the family of faith. In fact, in Mark ten thirty, we see God promising to us that for those of us who follow him and who give up houses and lands and families, we'll have a hundredfold, not just in the next life, but in this life. And he's talking about the church. He's talking about this body. Friends, brothers, sisters, invest here in this family Invest in the children of your youth, college students, young professionals, married with or without children. Now is the time for us to invest in the next generation. Use your youthful or not so youthful energy to make deposits for eternity. And young people, I do want to, I just want to, I want to challenge you and call you to this. Invest in the families in our church. It's a, it's a real opportunity. You can have a huge impact and it will cost you very little, and you will gain so much. Because Christ has called us beloved, 
And he's given us more than we can imagine. He sees us. He knows us. He calls us to experience the security of life within his family. For some of you, this means pursue marriage and children. These are good things. They're gifts from the Lord. And for some of you, this means join one of our ministries that focuses on the next generation. Did you know in this body, we have 900 kids from 0 to 18? That's a lot. And it's an incredible opportunity for lasting impact. But an impact that's not in our hands. It's in the Lord's. Generational ministry is a planting and watering ministry. We plant, others water, but only God gives the growth. This is so evident in nursery ministry and working with second graders. And even still working with middle schoolers and high schoolers, there's so much work and labor that goes into the next generation that only God can see the big picture. But it's worth it. Investing in the next generation as an, is an exercise in dependence on God who works all things for the glory of his son. And I'll tell you this. We will not promise you that we will raise up the generation that changes the world. But you know what? God may. And it may be that our presence in the lives of young people is one part of the larger project that God has in store for the world through Jesus. And lastly, remember that God gives to his beloved sleep. Rest in your identity in Christ. Christ is not like other identities that we can put off and put on, but it's one that calls for all of us. But when we give up our independence, we gain true freedom. When we submit our lives to Christ, when we die to ourselves, when we give up the world, it's worth it because we gain Christ. In our rest, we work. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling because it's the Lord who is at work in us. We know that unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain. And we know that the opposite is also true. If the Lord began a good work in you, he will finish it. Receive today the gift of dependence. Set aside your anxieties and lay your hope on Christ. And in that hope, experience the gaze of God, looking upon you as the beloved in Christ. In just a minute here, we will be singing a song taken directly from Numbers 6 the blessing that we frequently say at the end of our services. And as we sing it, I want you to listen for the emphasis on God's face and countenance towards you. We were made for God's loving gaze as we rest in lives of of dependence, dependence on God as our Father. Pray with me as we close. Gracious Father, we thank you that you have called us to live lives of dependence. Because apart from you, we can do nothing. It is in vain. Thank you, Father, for piercing through our delusion of self-sufficiency and calling us to live lives of true significance, true meaning, and true belonging in Christ. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. 
but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720-13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.